and welcome to Questions of Faith. I'm Aileen and today we have Sister Gemma Simmons from the Congregation of Jesus. She's a senior fellow at Margaret Beaufort Institute and director of the Religious Life Institute. And we also have Father Ro Rogers, who is the parish priest of Our Lady and St. Peter in Alderbrae. Hello to you both. Hello, hello. Good morning, Aileen. Good morning, Gemma. Good morning, Tony. So last week we had a question from someone who was thinking about becoming a priest. This week we have one where we have somebody who is thinking about becoming a religious sister. I know that there will be men and women who are thinking about the religious life too. I worry that the religious orders are getting smaller and it could be a bit lonely. What is your advice? Is it a good life? Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a prayer and then I'm going to answer the question. So let's begin this uh, program with a prayer. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which God has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and the incomparably great power for us who believe in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, a question about vocations to religious life and whether or not it's a lonely life. Uh, because numbers are going down and because there is uh, a diminishment, as it were, of religious life. I would say that it's certainly true that numbers are diminishing. I mean, at the moment in my province, that means all the sisters within uh, the United Kingdom at the moment, the number of sisters that we have is actually smaller now, quite considerably smaller, than the numbers in the one community that I originally joined decades ago. And it is true that we are getting older and smaller, but there is also the fact that if you want to travel fast, you travel light. And in some ways, our smaller numbers are making it much easier for us to respond more immediately, more um, quickly to situations that arise. So what a number of women are finding who are entering religious life is that in many ways, it's less weighed down by the, the weight, the heaviness of an institution. They're not finding themselves having to carry institutions because most religious orders have let go of their large structures and institutions now. And in that sense, they travel more lightly. And in smaller groups, it's true that within the community, there's much less of a sort of total institution, total community than there was. But of course, what that means is that Sisters today are making much deeper friendships and stronger networks and collaborative networks, not only with other people in other religious orders and other clergy, but other lay people. There's much more of a sense, I think, of something that's dynamic, that's collaborative. So in all sorts of ways, I think there's a certain excitement about the fact that we are smaller, we uh, travel more lightly, 
we're lighter on our feet, as it were. So I would say, and and I have to say that I did some research on this um, two years ago or so in the Religious Life Institute, of which I'm the director. We did a research project where we talked to women who had joined religious orders both apostolic and monastic, both Catholic and Anglican, since 2000. And we asked them to talk about their experience. And many of them did talk about their sadness at the diminishment of the order and the fact that people that they loved and uh, revered were dying because they were getting older. But they also talked about how there's so much more of a sense of networking and collaborative um, endeavor, not only across the country, but across the world, and much a deeper sense of belonging to a worldwide sisterhood. And I think that's something that our smallness and our poverty has given us. It's a gift from this time. So I would say to anybody who's thinking about entering religious life, you know, make inquiries, come and find out, come and see. Um, so many people have fantasies in their minds, um, projections about what they think religious life is like, mostly culled from what they've seen in films and on the telly. And I have to say that the reality is very different. So I would always say, get to know some sisters, come and find out. And if anyone listening thinks, well, I don't know any sisters, well, you know me because you're listening to me. So get in touch with me and I would be very happy to put you in touch with other sisters uh, so that you can just find a community near you where you maybe can visit, maybe can talk to somebody face to face and have a real conversation with a real person and explore more about it. Father Tony. Uh Yes, well, obviously, because I am not a religious, I can't quite answer that question in the, the direct and comprehensive way that Gemma did. I suppose all I can do, though, is, is talk about the parallel uh, with the changes in priests in the, 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 the ministry of, of priests who belong to dioceses, in other words, those who are not members of religious orders. And we, too, are experiencing changes in in terms of of the numbers of support people there are around us we spend the vast majority of us spend most of our ministry as priests now uh living alone uh, but collaboratively hopefully working with people in our parish so i think out of out of every change in in religious life and priestly life uh, whatever the negatives are there are always some positive challenges uh, which are worth considering and i think the great thing is that because a, a priest in a parish cannot do everything it enables the wonderfully experienced and articulate and competent people we have within our parishes to be sharing as much as possible in the work we do. Thank you, Father Tony. Could I give the next question to you, which is, our bishop said he was away on retreat this week. What does a retreat for a religious priest or bishop look like? Is it usually self-guided, part of an organised retreat, or just a break from normal duties? Very good question, actually, because I think quite often people assume that 
the way religious and 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 clergy do things is bound to be a little bit different. Well, perhaps in some ways it is, but in in many ways it's not. I think the first thing to say is that um, as a priest, more often than not, I would be going on retreat with fellow clergy from the diocese. And the reason for that is partly because we organise a, a, a retreat um, every couple of years uh, for the priests of the diocese and go away usually to a monastic setting or something. Um, and it gives us a chance, as well as being on retreat, to be with one another. Because following on for the last question about spending much more of our time living alone and living separately, we don't necessarily bump into one another all that often. And so one of the plus sides of retreat is, is the ability to do that. But it doesn't preclude any of us at any time saying, actually, I'd like to make a private retreat uh, with nobody else there and, and to also make the choice whether it's guided or not guided. My hunch, and I don't know the answer to this one, is that perhaps bishops in particular, when they go on retreat, you know, have, have got a, a multitude of things which they feel they need to address or have support in. And so my guess, though I don't know, is that, that while it, it may well be an individual retreat, though not always, bishops go on retreat with their clergy, and sometimes groups of bishops have retreats on their own. Uh, but, but, but I think they probably value the, the, the ability to offload and, and chat through things with, with, um, with somebody who's a retreat giver, very often from a totally different background, because, of course, the great thing is that Nobody needs to be either ordained or a member of a religious community to be able to uh, lead a retreat. So sometimes we benefit in all sorts of ways from, you know, enormously gifted people in, uh, in from 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 other kind of walks of life. So that's really what it's like. It's 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 pretty much the same as anybody else's retreat. Thanks very much. I'm going to hand over. I'm going to hand over to you, Sister Gemma. Wow. Well, for me, uh, there's a sort of two-way thing going on because, of course, I'm in the business of retreat giving myself. So, an awful lot of the people who would be um, directing or accompanying a retreat in a in a retreat house like St Bino's would be friends and colleagues, and sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes if you want to talk about something really quite difficult or challenging, it's actually important to have someone who doesn't know you and who's completely outside your circle. So there are times when I either uh, go on retreat completely on my own and just have a week of utterly blissful silence and absolutely nobody asking me anything or, or interacting at all. 
Um, or I take advantage sometimes of being overseas when I'm uh, working somewhere abroad and make a retreat there because I know there's nobody going to know me there. So I can really be very private in, you know, what I may be wanting to reflect with, um, reflect on with someone. But there is a huge, huge richness in making a retreat when somebody accompanies you. It's as if there's somebody, first of all, actually to hold you to account um, so that you can hear in having to articulate what's going on in your life and what's going on in your prayer. It's like, um, you know, I'm a musician and when, I, when I'm tuning an instrument, you're kind of listening for the trueness of the tone. And every once in a while you hear something in the tone of a, of a string of an instrument that's just not quite on pitch. And I think talking sometimes about what's going on in your prayer, what's going on in your life, I'm also listening out for that in myself and thinking, nah, I'm kidding myself there. Or mm, I'm wondering if I'm completely coming clean about that. Or, oh, gosh, I hadn't realized the implications of that before. Gosh, that's interesting. So to, to, to talk that one through with somebody can be very helpful, especially if, like me, you spend a lot of time listening to other people and therefore the temptation is not to do that much listening to yourself. And it's really important if I'm going to be of real use to people, if I'm going to be useful to them in in my ministry to them, that I've got to be as as true and as authentic in my own life, in my own prayer life um, as I can be. Um. It's maybe just a, a matter of kind of interest to, to share with our listeners that I was given a huge, huge honour, huge honour um, last year, just um, before Christmas. The Archbishop of Canterbury asked me if I would give a retreat to the bishops of the Church of England. And I thought, wow, what on earth have I got to do or say, you know, to a whole load of, of Anglican bishops and you know, some very eminent men and women among them. And in the end, he said, look, all I need you to do is tell them to pray more and look after themselves better. And I thought, oh, well, I can do that, you know. And I spent time with them and we spent time just talking through what's it like trying to be a leader? What's it like trying to hold other people, to carry other people? And I talked through some issues that I think there are in leadership with regard to looking after yourself to make sure you know that thing in a in a, a an aeroplane when you're when you're being told about the seat belts and everything else it always says you know if the um, if the oxygen masks come down from the ceiling in an aeroplane you've got to put your own mask on before you put the mask on for your children. And that always seems so counterintuitive to me. I mean, any mother or father worth their salt would surely want to look after their kids before they looked after themselves. But there's a sense in which if you're not breathing properly, you can't help someone else to breathe because <laughs> you haven't got enough oxygen. And I think there's something there in terms of people who are leaders, whether it's priests, parish priests, or whether it's bishops or, or anybody else in any leadership role, they've got to have enough sort of spiritual oxygen to breathe first before they can help anyone else to breathe. And and I think in a retreat, that's what you're, you're trying to get back to, a nice equilibrium of 
of breathing deeply and breathing well, breathing in the Holy Spirit, breathing in the Spirit of God alive within you. Uh, and then you'll be able to help other people to breathe. Thank you both. Um, really sound advice there. The next question I'm going to ask, keep with you, Sister Gemma, which is, what is your favourite religious painting? Can you describe it and explain why? Oh, wow. And immediately I've got a gazillion paintings in my head. But I think I'm going to go back to when I was 11 years old. I was first in primary school. Am I going to talk about that one? Yes, I am. And um, in one of our piano practice rooms, I was at a boarding school. And there was a painting of a, it's a crucifixion by Salvador Dali. And it's called Christ of St. John of the Cross. And it's really worth looking at. It's, as far as I know, it's in a museum. Uh, I think it's in Glasgow. It's up in Scotland. And it's the most extraordinary painting because it's, it's a crucifixion, but it's looking at Christ from above him and looking down at him from above. So you're not looking up at him or you're not looking face to face at him. And therefore, you've got a view of how the world looked from the perspective of Christ as he hung on the cross. And I can just remember as a child being utterly fascinated by that painting, both because of its weirdness of perspective, but also because I'd never really thought about what was it like for Christ looking down at the world as he hung on the cross. And I can remember just that I used to go in there quietly on my own when nobody knew what I was up to. And I would just sit and look at this painting. You know, I was only a child of 11 and I would just be with that painting. And I think that was the painting that taught me that art can speak to us spiritually, can speak to our souls. And it was the painting that taught me to look at other paintings, other religious paintings, um, as a means of prayer, as a way of praying. Um, and so I think every other religious painting I've looked at and have been held by, and there are so many. I mean, there's a there's a fabulous painting in Paris in the Musée d'Orsay of Peter and John on Easter morning running to the tomb and looking. It's a mixture on their faces of anguish and terror and hope. Um, and, and again, I can remember when I was a student in Paris, I used to go and sit there and just stare at this painting. And, and I knew that I had learned to contemplate paintings as a child at school in the piano room. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's learning to see what's in a painting and it's learning to allow a painting to speak to you. And any painting that helps you to do that is going to be good in my book. Yeah, we're going to all look up that painting by Salvador Dali now. I'm going to hand over to you now. You now, Father Tony. OK, well, um, I'm delighted that that was Gemma's choice, because it certainly would have been one of mine. But I'm going to go off in a different direction after I've told you um, a rather amusing story about the Salvador Dali uh painting of Christ of St John of the Cross. 
for some time it it hung in the in the Glasgow Museum of Religious Life, the Mungos, and it was overpowering in quite a small building there, in its rightful place where it was before in the in the main main museum in, and art gallery in in Glasgow. It's perfect, but I remember somebody uh, having a conversation with me once about the painting. And he said to me, you know, it's one of my favourite paintings, he said. And he said, I think it's one of Roald Dahl's best works. Uh, <laughs> he, he hadn't quite made the distinction between Roald Dahl and Salvador Dali. And I don't actually think that Roald Dahl would uh, ever have come up with anything like Christ of St John of the Cross. But I want to go in a different direction. Um, recently, I've done a bit of work on the Irish famine. And one of the things I wanted to study and look at was art and the Irish famine. And because it was such a grim uh, kind of scenario, uh, there was actually very little uh, artwork connected with that time. But what there was, I found enormously powerful. It was religious in the sense that it was linked with the life of people and the death of people and the faith of people. But there was so little of it precisely because who would want to hang, you know, in a corridor or uh, a principal room, you know, a painting of something so tragic. But, but there are two that I remember in particular that really spoke to me about faith in difficult times and circumstances. And I'm sure that all kind of wars and, and crises and traumas of one kind or another and disasters will produce not only their own artwork, but their own religious artwork to see how people's faith is affected by what's going on. And the two paintings I'm thinking of in particular uh, were of, uh, from the famine time was a, a wonderfully sad picture of a burial with bedraggled um, family members gathered around a coffin and a grave and a priest presiding over the, the, the words of committal. And... It, it it it's a painting that I I often look at again because I think you know particularly at the moment with the the troubles in Ukraine of the the the, the kind of circumstances in which people have had to bury their dead and I think of people during COVID as well who were only able to bury their dead in in a very Kind of limited way and with limited numbers, and 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 the, the 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 parallel with the famine is there. And the other painting that I have in my mind is is one of a priest saying mass uh, for people gathered in a very small space, crowded into a room, um, again looking very haggard and 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 starved and 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 with clothes falling off them but yet again it was such a, a fabulously vivid 
image of how important faith is in difficult times. So, sorry for departing a little bit from obviously religious pictures, but, but those two do come to mind. So I'm thinking again, we should be able to find them online somewhere, shouldn't we, Father Tony? Yes, you can. There's, if, you, if you go to Art in the Irish Famine, you'll find quite a lot of, of, of paintings um, up there at that time. And what's interesting is, uh, while in that period, um, because there were no photographs, cartoons were very common with, uh, to go with news stories and things, hardly any cartoons at all directly related to the famine. It was too near the bone. Well, uh, I think the what you've both given us with your paintings this morning shows how rich paintings can be and the words and meaning that we can uh, gain from them. The time is now ripe for a piece of music, which I'm going to play. I'm also going to um, tell you, dear listener, that we're not quite as lively in terms of Father Tony and Fa Sister Gemma being able to speak with one another this morning because we have a little bit of uh, mic feedback situation. So, um, but nevertheless, there is so much richness coming out of them. Um, they just can't speak to one another, but at least we can hear each of them. So I hope you'll enjoy this. Serexit Christus. Alleluia.
You're listening to Radio Maria and to Questions of Faith this morning. We have Father Tony Rogers with us and Sister Gemma Simmons. And we are on to our next question. So this one is for you, Father Tony, to start with. And it is, when we read accounts of Jesus rising from the dead, we hear that he can walk through a wall but also eat fish the first seems to imply a non-physical resurrection and the second that he was still very much in his body. Please explain. I think that's a wonderful question because for the last week or two, particularly during Easter week when, when the gospel readings are very much centred on the appearances of Christ after the resurrection, uh, it, it's something that challenges me every time. But I think what's important is to take into account two things. One is that the stories of the reactions of people on hearing that the tomb was empty or that Jesus had risen from the dead and the meetings with him, you know, in the upper room with or without Thomas on the road to Emmaus, it's full of contradictory kind of reactions. For example, in St. Luke's Gospel, the account of the first day of the week, that first Easter Sunday, we get initially an appearance of men in white to the women who came to the tomb. And despite what the men in white said, the only reaction from the women was that they didn't know what to think. They, in turn, passed on this message, this news, to the apostles, who actually regarded it as utter nonsense. That's what the scriptures tell us. Except for Peter, who heard the news and was amazed, didn't say he believed. So none of those very early accounts are focused on faith. We find it in John's account of Jesus and Peter coming to the tomb and that statement there that when John finally went in, he saw and he believed. The grave clothes were there and that was enough to bring him to faith. Then we have the account, too, of the absence of Thomas in the upper room on that first day of the week, on that first Easter Sunday. Thomas wasn't there. The apostles, the other ten apostles, were there. And they were so excited that obviously when they next saw Thomas, they, they told him all about it. And obviously Thomas knew they were thrilled with what they'd experienced. But because he'd missed out, he needed more. And he was quite demanding. He said, unless I can see and touch the marks left in his hands and in his side, I refuse to believe. And then when Jesus appeared again, 
Jesus invited Thomas to do exactly what he wanted. But John's Gospel doesn't tell us that Thomas did. It doesn't say, oh, yes, he came and, and responded to Jesus's call and felt his hands in his side. It simply says that Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Then we have the problem on the road to Emmaus. The disconsolate disciples just shuffling their feet as they walked along and looking down at the ground and not recognizing the person next to them. I think if you take all of those stories, you get back to what the question is asking. Walking through walls suggests non-physical resurrection. Wanting to sit down for breakfast and eat fish suggests that he was very much alive in the body and inviting people to see his hands and feel the wounds in his hands and side does suggest precisely that. But perhaps what we also need to bear in mind is perhaps the whole composite picture is that it was Jesus, recognisably Jesus, recognisably a physical Jesus, recognisably a hungry Jesus, recognisably a wounded Jesus, but also a glorified Jesus who somehow, through his risen body, was different. I think it's significant when we see that he appeared in a room, we've got to be a little bit careful about just assuming that the writer is saying he walked through a wall. He was, he was there with them. It doesn't say that he kind of came through the door without opening it. But there's, there is this sense in which the whole experience of the risen Christ is, is just so overwhelming. It's full of very different kind of statements and experiences. So that's, I think, what I want to say about it. Thank you. Sister Gemma. Oh, wow. I don't know that I could in any way improve on that. I mean, it, it is extraordinary and it is a mystery, but I think there's something also about reading and responding to those stories of Jesus's risen appearance, which is that the risen Jesus comes to people precisely as they need him. Um, and above all, he comes to people in the very place where they need healing and presence. If we think of, you know, I think one of the most heartbreaking encounters that you can read in any literature is the encounter between Jesus and Peter on the beach at the end of John's Gospel. And I find it heartbreaking because there, there is both a very rugged honesty about Jesus's conversation with Peter. I mean, he's not saying to Peter, there, there, dear, it doesn't matter. It does matter. It did matter. It mattered to Jesus and it mattered to Peter more importantly. And Peter had to have a chance to revisit that. 
and revisit it in a way that made it whole again. But that made it whole because he was able to find within himself the response that he really wanted to give, a response that was both that both mirrored his love and mirrored his bluntness and his honesty. You know, you know all things. You know I love you. But you also know what I'm like. And you also know that I may, I may, you know, mess it up again and again and again and again. Um, so there's, there's a beauty in that relationship, you know, that is very, very real. So if somebody were to ask me, you know, do you think the resurrection narratives are real? The answer is yes, they're fantastically real, but real in the sense of they're true to the relationship between Jesus and that person. And that would be the same with his meeting of Mary Magdalene. It's true of his meeting with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know, he responds to people and he appears to people as they need him to appear, which isn't necessarily always as they would expect him to appear or as they would think they need him to appear. Um, so, but 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 how it or the mechanics of it, I'm afraid, is entirely a mystery to me. Um, I suppose I'm I am more interested in the dynamics than the mechanics. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> the next question. I think we might have time for your answer on this one, Sister Gemma, and we may well move to Father Tony after the music break. Um, what is a mystic? Are they different to us? Would you like to be one? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I'm going to turn this question around and say, in a sense, that a lot of people think that, that mystics are kind of people who are a bit spooky. You know, they've got some kind of secret... Um, special, really weird um, approach. I mean, today is the feast day of one of the great, great mystics of the church, Catherine of Siena. And she was one of the most down-to-earth, blunt people you could possibly imagine, as was Teresa of Avila, who said, God is to be found among the pots and pans. Um, I think because some of the mystics both wrote about and recorded extraordinary experiences, we tend to think of mysticism as something that's weird and extraordinary. And um, the great Jesuit theologian, the German Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner, talked about the mysticism of everyday life. And I think by that he meant that there is in absolutely ordinary everyday experiences... Uh, the presence of God is there and we can actually intuit God's presence in the dead ordinary, dead ordinary things of life. And in that respect, my many, many years, decades of being a, um, a retreat giver and somebody who is a spiritual director who accompanies other people in their prayer, the world is populated by mystics. I have met so many of them. Most of them have no idea. You know, and sometimes people come to me and say, I don't know what's gone wrong. I think I must be losing my faith because God's gone kind of quiet on me. God's just disappeared. There's just nothing but darkness and blankness. And I can't. It's as if I'm shouting at, at nobody. Uh, you know, what do I do? Where do I go with this? And there's a sort of checklist. You know, are you well? 
Are you exhausted? Are you depressed? Is something, you know, going wrong in your life? You check those for, is there a reason why this might have happened? But if the answer to all of those things is no, well, let's have a look at what John of the Cross says about, um, you know, the, the darkness of God, the, fun, the fact that God does go very silent on us sometimes. And one of the great poets who said, there is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness. <laughs> and if, you know, if I, when I say to people, tell me what you're wanting, what are you asking of God? Are you, are, just, are you just wanting to give it all up? And they say, no, no, I, th- where else do I go? I'm clinging on in faith. I'm clinging on in hope and love. And I say, well, that's what the mystics did. You know, this this is kind of part of a mystical experience. And they look at me as if I've made a rude suggestion, you know. They're horrified to think that they might be experiencing something similar to the mystics. But in that respect, I think mystical experience is much more ordinary than people think. Oh, interesting. Father Tony, do you have anything to add or would you like to wait till after the music break? I don't think I have anything to add. I mean, I think Sister Gemma said it all um, because the mystics are are clearly people who, without necessarily knowing it, have have a, a very profound relationship, not not always untroubled, uh, with the living God, and and the mystics are pushed. I pushed in all sorts of different ways. But I think that's all I'd want to say. But thank you, Gemma. Thanks, Father Tony. Right, time for some music. The number to call if you would like to ask a question from our lovely and always full of wisdom speakers is 01223 375 564. That's 01223 375 564. And we will be back with you very soon. You are listening to Questions of Faith and we have with us our phone call from Helena. And Helena, this question will be for you, Father Tony, but if you could ask the question first, Helena. Father Tony, Tony Rogers, I've got a question. The Christmas feast, uh, the Christmas celebration, that's just become such an important part of 
because the schools do something about it. Every school does something about it. You've got all these movies about it. But Easter doesn't get as much oomph about it. And that might be the culture, the society, or something like that. But also, Pentecost, I feel like, doesn't get as much stuff. If you were to rank it in order, Father Tony, in the importance for the church, where do those three lie? Easter, Pentecost, and Christmas. Okay. I think that's a, a very understandable kind of question because the truth is that in popular culture and practice, um, Christmas seems to win hands down. And that's for a number of reasons, I think. I think one is that commercially there is still some vestiges of uh, the religious dimension of Christmas around in the commercialization of Christmas in that, you know, relatively few, but religious Christmas cards are still there. Uh, in, in many schools, apart from church schools, you know, something will happen by way of carol services or nativity plays, but not by any means in all. Whereas I think at Easter, what's happened in reality, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's an Anglican priest, and who said that one of her friends is a retired village school teacher and, and made the comment that she was pretty sure that there was no child or no parent in the school she just retired from, a very small school, who really had any notion of what Easter was about. Because even the tenuous connection uh, but a real connection with Easter eggs and the the tomb, which is it's a good image. The the, the certainly the, the the proper hen's egg where the chick breaks out of the protective shell has always you know been a very good image of Christ breaking out of the tomb. But I don't know about you, but my impression often now is that even the Easter egg has been replaced in some of our popular culture by the Easter bunny. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what that's about. I mean, the Easter lamb is slightly different because Christ is the lamb of God. But to get back to the heart of the question about importance, just look at the first preaching, the preaching of people like Peter and Paul. And basically the core of their preaching is that if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, we're wasting our time if this bit is not true. It's also said by spiritual writers that the incarnation, the birth of Christ at Christmas, is nonetheless overshadowed by the cross. In other words, this is the beginning of a life that was moving inexorably towards crucifixion and resurrection. 
the other thing I think we need to remember is that until Christ was risen from the dead, and we talked about the appearances of the risen Christ uh, a few minutes ago, if it wasn't till Christ was risen from the dead that so much of the teaching of Jesus that was didn't make sense to the apostles fell into place. So the whole of the Christian faith is understood in the light of the resurrection. Thanks, Father Tony. Do you have anything to add, Sister Gemma, to Helena's question? Uh, yeah, just to say, well, it's more to a comment of Father Tony's, actually. Mm -hmm. The Easter bunny is not a bunny, it's a hare. Oh. Yes, and the Anglo-Saxon word for hare is eoster, which is where we get the word Easter from. And it was the symbol, of course, of spring and of new life. So actually the Easter bunny, although most people don't know this, uh, has got more to do with Easter than we think. Um, you know, um, but kind of there we are. Um, I, I did notice, though, this year, because normally speaking, in the bigger supermarkets or the bigger shops, you can find at least one, usually one card that has got something to do with the actual Feast of Easter. Maybe it'll be a picture of a church or a picture of a cross made of flowers or something. I noticed that this year, there, here in Cambridge, there was not a single Easter Easter card. I refuse categorically to send anybody pictures of bunnies, rabbits, you know, anything, eggs or anything, chicks, I just won't do it. Um, but I noticed this year that there literally was not a single place. I mean, I must have gone to five different big shops. Wow. Could not find a single one. So whether that's just lack of availability or whether it's just one more step away from any engagement at all with religion... I don't know, but I think I think we as Christians have got to make a bit of an effort, a bit of a push about this. I really do. There was um, a alcohol drinks company that had a very shocking Good Friday um, advertisement about a sale for drinks. And I think that I, it probably was just done through ignorance rather than anything else, but they clearly didn't realise the significance of Good Friday. I did write to them. Oh, good um, for you. Yeah, I'm really yeah. pleased. Did you get an answer back? No, no, I didn't. But I just thought I did write and I, I just said this is really sensitive to yes. Christian people. Yes. Oh, well, good for you. And, I, and I'd love to say to any of our readers, you know, without getting paranoid, I think if we do see things that are truly offensive or truly crass, then actually it, there's no reason why we shouldn't write in and just say, I, I just wonder if you're aware, perhaps you're not. And, and ask them to remove it respectfully. I think we must always be respectful and not rant at people because that doesn't help at all. But just to point out, you know, I think you would not do this with some other faith groups. Please don't do it to us. Yeah. yeah. Elena, that's the, quest the answer to your question. I hope you found it helpful. Oh, thank you guys very much. You're very Our welcome. pleasure. Thanks Lovely to calling. hear from you. Well, we are coming near the end of our day today and we have time, I think, for one last tongue-in-cheek question. Um, so a fairly quick fire one, this. Um, I will go to Sister Gemma first because, Father Tony, you're going to finish with a prayer and blessing for us. 
So the question is, is God a capitalist or a socialist? Sister Gemma. Oh, boy, what a fabulous question. Um, I think God is neither one nor the other and both one and the other. Um, I mean, Jesus himself talked about making friends with the mammon of iniquity, making friends with money, uh, which is a really, I've always been very intrigued by what he meant by that. Um, But he also uh, talked about if you can't be trusted with money, that tainted thing, you know, what can you be trusted with? So I think that in that sense, you know, money in and of itself is neither good nor bad. And um, what what Jesus warns us about is kind of the love of money in the sense of a, a kind of lust for money, of, of wanting and needing money for its own sake. But I can think of so many amazing Christians amazing Catholics who have used money for wonderful purposes. Um, I I can think of one family foundation who don't like to be named in public, so I won't name them. But, I mean, I have received thousands and thousands of pounds from them as part of grants, you know, for wonderful projects. And I know them very well. And they they are a wealthy family, but they do so much good with their money. And I cannot believe that God does anything but bless them. And in that sense, capitalism, which is about the creation of wealth, it's what you do with the wealth you create. If you just sit on it, well, where's it going? That's not a godly thing to do. But there's no virtue in being poor in and of itself. But therefore, do I think that God's a socialist? Well, what I'm talking about is the redistribution of wealth. So yes, I think that... um, to use all your skills to make money is a really good thing if you're making it for the common good. Um, and so in that respect, I would want to say that God is both a capitalist and a socialist and neither a capitalist nor a socialist. <laughs> OK, well, we need to ask Father Tony what he thinks about that. I uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm always worried when politicians use biblical quotes to further their own ends uh, by way of suggesting that Jesus was very definitely not the opposite um, of what they are. Uh, Because I think it's so true that um, capitalism and socialism in themselves are not actually ideologically opposed. There's no reason why the, the distribution of wealth and the acquisition of wealth and the use of talents can't both be used to good ends. And so I think it's certainly true that Jesus is both and neither, but he's not one or the other. That's that's for certain. I thought you would say I thought you would both say he was neither one or the other, but I didn't think he would say both of those things. So that was that was a surprise to me. Uh, maybe to the listener when I saw this question. Um, thank you to you both, Sister Gemma Simmons and Father Tony Rogers, for your time today. Um, you will be back, I'm sure, soon, I hope, to see you. Can we finish with a prayer, please, Father Tony? Saying at different times is the way that God finds us where we are and is there for us with our particular needs. So let me conclude with a few verses of Psalm 139. 
O Lord, you search me and you know me. You know my resting and my rising. You discern my thoughts from afar. You mark when I walk or lie down. You know all my ways through and through. And before ever a word is on my tongue, you know it, O Lord, through and through. Amen. 